Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where jiu-jitsu practitioners open their minds to new ideas and concepts about personal development, entrepreneurship, jiu-jitsu, and life. Our mission is to inspire, impact, and or improve your life in some way to support you during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 118. Today we have the fourth degree black belt, Jeff Curran. Jeff is an MMA veteran of the UFC, WC, Pride Strike Force, Bellator, fought all over the world. He currently owns and operates Curran Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Crystal Lake, Illinois. And he shared with us his early days in Jiu-Jitsu before the UFC won. Fighting and coaching and MMA for nearly two decades and the lessons that he learned during this journey. So before I play the interview, I want to share a message with you. And the message is turn the negative into a positive. Just for the context, I want to share with you a little piece of jiu-jitsu history. For people who don't know, the jiu-jitsu revolution, technical revolution, happened during the 90s. If you have a chance, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to my podcast interview with Robert Drysdale, episode 102. He talks about the history of jiu-jitsu. He talks about his project, The Close Guard. I just started reading the book, and the documentary is coming out. Really cool, so take a look when you have a chance. He talks about the early 90s being the beginning of the revolution of the competitive jiu-jitsu. The very first federation, the real federation, was in 1967. I'm not 100% sure. I have to listen to the interview again. But then the CBJJ, Confederação Brasileira de Jiu-Jitsu, was founded by Carlos Gracie Jr. It was in 1994 with the very first official national championship. And then 96 was the first world. So around that time, a lot of techniques were being developed. And competition, of course, stimulated this, this evolution. There was a time that the half-guard revolution is started. For people who don't know, I have a podcast in Portuguese as well. And I had the opportunity last week to interview Roberto Gordo Correa. He is, is a six-degree black belt. He was a 1996 world champion in the black belt division. And one of the trailblazers of Gracie Baja team, which back then was called Baja Gracie. And he was one of the standouts. And I had the opportunity to interview him and why I'm saying this and why I'm talking about turn the negative into a positive. When 1989, I believe, he got injured. It was already old injuries started getting worse and worse and then finally really gave out and his knee had a major issue. So he tried to get back to training a little earlier and he couldn't really use his leg too well. And he started trying to go sideways, see what he could do, just using one leg. And with that, he was going to the half guard. So he, he talks about, I didn't create the half guard. The half guard was already there. It was just very defensive. It was a half guard. is basically you just push and you get back to the guard. Or maybe you just bridge and explode. And But it wasn't something like refined techniques from there. So he started to implement underhooks. And underhook starts to expose to the back. And also he started looking into reversals, possible sweeps from there. 
And he started bringing that to the competition scene, and people never seen that. So that brought the surprise element. He turned the negative situation of having that injury and turning to a positive that became a very dangerous weapon because especially when you're doing something, a system that people don't know, they're not familiar with. And of course, more competitions start happening. People start noticing, not only to try to shut him down, but people start to implement and start coming up with different ideas and half guard start to evolve the way it is right now. And then deep half came in. So always started from someone turning a negative into a positive. Now, my question to you is, is there anything in your life that you're labeling negative that you could turn into a positive? As a matter of fact, you're listening to this podcast because I turned a negative into a positive. Maybe you knew, we don't know about the history of the podcast. Maybe the hardcore listeners who listen to all 118 episodes, maybe heard me talking about. But in 2018, two weeks before the Abu Dhabi World Pro, I dislocated my elbow really, really bad. Went to the hospital, don't even remember leaving the academy because they gave me morphine. They had to cut my gi. It was a mess. It was really bad. And I just remember waking up after with my arm back in place at the hospital. So as soon as I woke up, I had the initial, I didn't had my little pity party for like 15 minutes. I was like, man, you know, I would already, I end up going to the tournament to watch because everything was already scheduled. But anyway, my first 15 minutes, I'm like, man, what am I going to do? I cannot uh, teach. I cannot train. Of course, I can compete. What am I going to do? So right after I just thought, man, there's a share, there's a, a phrase that I share with you all the time here in the podcast. The fact cannot be changed. Only your response to the fact can be changed. This is what happens. It is what it is. And I didn't want this. It's an undesired outcome, but it happened. What am I going to do with this time? And then I thought, you know what? I've been thinking about doing a podcast for a while. And let me see what I can do. So I went online signed up for a podcast course, did some mentoring, and man, in three weeks, I already have five episodes, and now we're here, 118, because I decided to turn my negative into a positive. So now I flip back to you. What is a situation that hopefully that happened right now and you're able to turn into a positive? Or maybe right now it's happening, and you need to make the shift. You need to turn into a positive because... We just sitting and crying about it. It's not going to do anything. So we need to think about, okay, next. And also, one of the things that I share a lot in interviews, the mindset that I've been doing my best to adopt, and hopefully you can think about this too, it's not labeling the situation so much as negative and positive, but it's just undesired outcomes that happen because many, very, very often something undesired that happens with us that we look back and when when it happened maybe a few years down the road you look back and say man that was rough when it happened that but that took me to this place i had to live that undesired outcome that that i label negative to be in this labeled positive right now so this is something to don't get too caught up into the the label the negative into a positive but it's more like turn that undesired outcome that you did not want that in. But it happened. So be it. What can you do about it? So hopefully this message 
can resonate with you. And I'll stay with Jeff Kern's interview right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Oos. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free Jiu-Jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Jeff Curran. Jeff is a fourth-degree black belt under Peter Sauer. He's also a veteran of the UFC, WC, Pride, Strike Force, and Bellator, who had just over 60 professional fights before retiring. He owns and operates Curran Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Jeff is married and the proud father of two boys. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. It's I'm sorry about the last time we that I had to cancel on you, but we were in the middle of construction here, so it's good to finally finally get with you. Right on. So yeah, so tell me more a little bit of what's going on with the academy with the the madness of the pandemic. I know that a lot of people who listen to the podcast are jiu-jitsu practitioners who do have a lot of entrepreneurs. That's uh, kind of like the beginning. That's what the idea get. Entrepreneurs who practice jujitsu, and so we can exchange some ideas, and then eventually, even a lot of non-entrepreneurs people <clears throat> still listen to you. But tell me a little bit. How was this past year? We're recording this in March 2021. So tell us more. What's going on right now? Well. Uh about a year ago to the date, I think tomorrow will be the one year exact. Uh, I was at one of my affiliate schools up north, uh, Team Kerr in Madison, Wisconsin. And I was with my good friend, Dave Porter, who's also a, a black belt in jiu-jitsu under Pedro Persauer. And I was coming back with him. We were driving and he started telling me about his, uh, him and his partner's school out in Seattle, um, Bellingham BJJ. And He's like, man, I think we're going to have to close down for a week, maybe two. And he's, I said, really, for what? He said, you know, that coronavirus. And he told, I said, yeah, my wife's been talking a lot about it. I had just gotten back. We just did my, I think, fifth annual BJJ retreat. I had 96 competitor, or 96 attendees in Florida. And th- we just cleared that by about two weeks. So I was like, oh, thank God I got my retreat in and didn't have to cancel on a hundred people and refund money for a hundred people. And, you know, that kind of loss. But by the time we got back from the drive, um, I'd talked a little bit more with my wife and um, I, and some of the guys. And I said, man, I think we should close for a week too, just to be safe. And we put a notice on the door that we'd be closed for a week. And that was it. A week turned into, well, it stretched out. We got to open back up kind of on a partial basis, uh, June 5th. So however many months that was from March till June, April, May, June, was it three? April, May, June. Yeah. So maybe we went about three, four months before we can open up on a partial basis. 
And even then we weren't supposed to be doing what we were doing. We were just, um, I had to make the decision to close my school. I had a nice brand new facility that we had just uh, started two years ago to date. Uh, we were, man, I had to let it all go. There, the, the landlord wasn't working with me. It, he, he wasn't gonna make a new deal for us. And my rent, you know, the way rent tears up, it wasn't going to be going down anytime soon. So after doing Zoom classes and live streams and anything we can to be in touch with our students, uh, eventually I just decided, you know, it's probably going to be best that we let this place go and I find a smaller scale place that because we don't know what the new normal is going to be and we don't know what the response for people getting back to human contact is going to be like. So I made the hard call. We closed up. Uh, I left everything behind. It took me a week to move out. And after we moved out, we started, thankfully, one of my students is a pastor at a local church. So he gave us a little 600 square foot room. And I brought my mats there, just some of my portable mats. And we kept about 60 of our students that were paying and training between kids and adults. And uh, little by little, people were coming back. But still, we have about 250 people on hold and, and, and or canceled indefinitely. And um, during that process of being in this church and people kind of not being too happy to be there, yeah. we were still getting new students. We still had people kind of like coming in. And I could not find a building. I could not find a new place to run in, unless I left my town. And if I leave my town, then I have to lose those students because you know, get a 10 miles of country road. It's an inconvenience for a lot of people to leave town. And so I found a place. We have a nice 5,000 square foot uh, pole barn here behind one of my old gyms in my town. And the new owner of this building, he has invested a lot of money to bring us water and sewer and heat. It had nothing. And I had to take care of all the interior remodels. So that process took me about five months and we opened up here February 5th, and it's been climbing since. Beautiful, um, man. Yeah, yeah, it was hard. But I went from two big mats, having my boxing ring, you know, my cage, my fight team, um, everything. And now I've just decided I'm going to focus solely on jujitsu. Um, the handful of fighters that I had understood that and had to find different paths. But I've always kind of desired to just get back to 100% focus on my jujitsu because although I fought MMA that I'm a hundred percent to the core of jujitsu mind and you know I just don't want to be holding pads and doing too much striking and things like that I want to focus on my uh, on the art and sh sharing with the world and I think we're going to do it you know we're climbing pretty good and feeling really good about it yeah this is one of the things that it's at this point it's like it is what it is, right? And sometimes I, I have mentioned in a podcast many times before over the past years, I, tr I do my best not to label things positive or negative. It's just, it's just, it is what it is. It is what it is, yeah. Because maybe something you're going to look back in a few years from now and you maybe, I don't know how long, but you're going to look back and say, man, when it happened, it was awful, 
but I'm at this position today. I had to go through that moment to be where I'm at today. So was it negative? You know, was it positive? So it's just, it's just, it's just a fact. It's just what happened. So I feel that in the future, we're going to look back and man, it was, I try to see more as an undesired outcome than, you know, negative or probably just like, I really didn't want that to happen, but it actually did. But now I feel that this going to put in a different level, like I said, going back to your roots, going back to jujitsu, maybe if he was not the way that he wanted, but that's the same way that uh, I try to look at things here. I think so many businessmen uh, took a big hit. And of course, no one wants to hear like, what do you mean Gustavo is not negative? It's just positive. It's just, it is what it is. That's what happened. It's an undesired outcome and you got to do the best we can and move on. It is yeah. what it is. So let's, uh, let's go back to the beginning, man. When did you start martial arts? Did you start anything before jujitsu? How was it? Yeah, I, uh, well, to just to kind of cap off the whole situation with my school, you know, it's, you can understand this, you know, better than anybody. We use jujitsu in our real life. And when we train and have a bad day or an injury or a loss, uh, you come back the next day and you, you know, it's going to be better someday. You know, you go to a plateau in your training and you don't feel like you're climbing. And then all of a sudden you come out the other side and like, man, all that time I was getting better. I didn't even know it. So I'm proud of surviving what, the way we did. And, um, I'm, I'm confident in the future, but, you know, going back in the past, uh, I'm coming up probably close to 30 years since I started jujitsu in 91. Nice, I started uh, just at a local school. There's a local Hapkido school. I was training karate for a few years with my friend and he happened to actually get kicked out of karate for punching this guy in the nose and you know, the guy got a bloody nose and stuff. And anyways, he got kicked out. So he went and looking around for a place to train and we found this grappling place or this uh, Hapkido school where this guy was running, um, like a ground fighting class. And the guy who um, was running the class at the time is now a black belt under me and Pedro Sauer because at the time he was training judo and he went to a Hicks and Gracie seminar in, in Chicago. And he, uh, I guess maybe a flyer was mailed to his school where he was training. And he started teaching like the day, the week after the seminar, he started doing like Wednesday nights, showing off whatever mm -hmm. he knew. I mean, do there was no jujitsu in our area, zero. Like there was nothing, no one knew of any of it. And I took my first class and I learned a couple positions and a couple arm bars. And I was like, man, uh, this, what am I gonna do here? So I bought every magazine possible. And within a few weeks, we got a flyer for a megaton coming to um, a driving distance a few hours away. I was like just turning 15 years old. And I went to a megaton seminar and it was basically stand in line. And after an hour of warm up, stand in line and get your butt kicked. <laughs> and, I, and he gave me his business card. And then I got on the, after that, I was like, man, I got to learn jujitsu from this little guy. Now UFC hadn't even come out yet. I wasn't even aware of what I was, what it was that I was doing. I just kind of fell in love with it. So I started uh, traveling to Arizona all the time and, between my, my, um, between my dad and between my, uh, girlfriend's mom, everybody called me in for school all the time. And I, over the next few years, I would take maybe 30 trips to Arizona and just live with Megaton and train. 
and that was my launch. That was my my start. And then when I would come home, we would get late night mat time at this local place where we would all just kind of explore and practice what we could. And, you know, that was my start in jujitsu. And then Carlson Jr. moved to Chicago and he opened up a nice place there. Um, Daniel and Pedro Vienna, they were teaching out of there. They were purple belts. Another guy named Paulo Bazada, he was there. Really good guys. Hey, Diago was there and he was a brown belt then. And I had got my blue belt from Megaton and I went kind of like a, I went back to, I had a weird falling out with Megaton. It's a long story, but uh, we've made amends years later, but I was just a kid and he kind of kicked me out of his house and took, took something the wrong way because I wanted to go train when I was home with Carlson Jr. And I didn't understand that there was this tribal kind of family. And I asked him for permission and he said, sure. So I said, okay. And I looked into it, but then next time I was by him, he kicked me out of his house. So we had this like long, you know, this long mess for a long, many years. But so man, it was a rough time because I started dry. I had to drive almost two hours to the city to train with junior and it was great. He was teaching lots of classes. Uh, Hay was teaching lots of classes as well. And I'd take private classes like, he would work with me almost every day before class. If I would help him like with kids classes, then he would give me private class. So I would go there, help him with kids. And then he would teach me some stuff before classes started. But then I got my blue belt under junior. And then about a year and a half later, he um, maybe a year later, junior just up and left and moved to Cincinnati, moved out of state. Nobody was really in touch with him. And I was, and then, Hey, Diago, he moved to LA and I was like, man, I don't feel like I had a black belt to train under. So I felt kind of lost and I started looking around. And for us out here in the Midwest, because, because we had no jujitsu, we had to just travel. And I went to a Thai boxing seminar with this guy, Frank Cucci. And he said, hey, man, I heard you do jujitsu, blah, blah, blah. You got to meet this guy, Pedro Sauer. He's going to be at my place next week for the whole week doing a camp. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm coming. So that was it. I went and I met Pedro Sauer. I took a class with him right away and I was, I never looked back. So that was when I was 18 and now I'm 43 and I've been with, I've been with Pedro now 25, 26 years. Man, people don't realize how good they have right now. Huh? Like oh, man. Traveling here, Google, okay, 10 minutes, there's a school or 15 minutes or whatever. It's or crazy. a video or a video. Yeah. Today, you know? I mean, it was nuts. I, I had to, I, thankfully I came from a family that did flooring. So I, at a young age, I learned how to install carpet. So I would go work on the weekends with my uncle and make a, make a good amount of money laying carpet. And then I would take that money and buy flights and I would go live with Pedro. So now I was going to Utah all the time. And that was my Utah and Virginia beach. And then Minnesota, wherever Pedro Sauer went, I went. So I was just traveling with him and that became kind of my full-time full-time gig and um yeah it, it got a little rough man you know and when I was 18 my dad passed away he was only 40 years old wow. and, it, and it was uh really hard on me because my brother had moved away um I had a little sister 10 years younger than myself and I didn't want to leave my mom and my sister so I didn't I was kind of planning once my dad was healthy and better I was planning on moving to Utah or wherever Pedro was going to be living but then after he died, I decided I had to stay put. And that's when he said, look, he's like, little Jeff, you can 
you can keep open a little school and I'll help you. So I started bringing him out to my school like six times a year. I remember the first seminar I had with Pedro, I had like four guys. <laughs> wow. And then like now last year he came and we had about 140. That's so, awesome, yeah. man. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, so now, especially you started so young, how did you get involved with competitions? Because it didn't have barely any competitions back yeah. then. So when was your first one? My first, my first competition actually ever doing any kind of competition was like a Megaton put me in like a judo tournament in, in Arizona. And that was the first time I got to compete. I was so nervous, but I also didn't care because I didn't, I knew a little bit of the rules of judo and he just kind of gave me some strategies and stuff. And I was in like an open class black belt division and I won like six matches like just pulling guard and triangling guys yeah. <laughs> making an attempted throw, you know, try to throw the guy and then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And triangles and arm bars and, you know, they, nobody knew the mat very well. And that was my first time, but in America, in, a, in a, the Midwest, we had, and I would say in America too, because I'm sure you had a little more options in Brazil, but in America, there was nothing, but in the Midwest, a lot of wrestlers, a lot of guys that were, making up rules and putting on different types of grappling events. So anyone that came up, I went to, um, and then I went, then UFC came out and I was in my friend's basement and we all got money together and bought a pay-per-view. And I watched always walk to the octagon and I watched the whole promo story. And then I looked at my friends, I said, I got to do this mm. and this is it. I want to go represent jujitsu so bad, like it, I can't explain it. And um, that's kind of started it. I started looking around, trying to find somebody that would like manage me and um, get me opportunities. And that's when I met this guy, Monty Cox, who's like the original godfather yeah. of MMA, you know, he put on a show called the extreme challenge and mm -hmm. he let me come and do an eight man tournament when I just turned 20 years old, I did an eight man MMA turn, uh, no holds barred tournament. Then it was like a one 10 minute round or one 15 minute round. And, you know, that kind of fight. And I won all three fights by submission. And then he basically started managing me after that. And I actually have like 107 MMA fights that I can track back to, but I only have the record of 55 or 54 or 55 on uh, sanctioned bouts, but, you know, yeah. going back well over a hundred fights. So we were fighting all the time everywhere. And sometimes four man, sometimes eight man tournaments. Uh, and, uh, it was brutal. Bigger guys. Now tell me how was mentally speaking. First time you go for it for an MMA fight. And of course, uh, not just one fight, it's three fights. I cannot even imagine going through an MMA tournament that you finish, you're like, oh, we're not done yet. You know, you have to fight, not just grapple that you're tired, you tap out. Like, no, you can actually get seriously hurt. Mentally, how was for you the experience of going there for your first fight? I was so like, uh, I don't know if it's just how I came up in my life, but I also was there's that saying ignorance is bliss. You don't know any better. You don't know what can happen to you. I got you. You know, your frontal lobe in your brain is still opened up or whatever. You don't make really good decisions. So I was think I was just making bad decisions and fighting because I could handle it. 
um, it's the, the better I got, the more nervous I got. Um, the more my career went on and I never wanted to take easy fights. So I always was trying to push my manager to get me something big, something that can, you know, get me not even money, just more exposure, or get me a, a better event. And uh, then I started having a lot to lose. You know, I, he called me up one time and he said uh, so far back that at the time I didn't even have email. So he called me and he said, uh, he said, Hey, did you see the news? And I said, where would I see any kind of fight news? And he's like, Oh, on such an, on sure dog or one of the, whatever full conduct fighter rankings came out. And I said, there's rankings. He, I had no idea. He said, yeah, you're number nine in the world. I was like, what? Number nine fighter in the world gets $300 to fight. <laughs> there was no money in it. So, I, but I thought it was really cool. And that's when I put pressure on myself. That's when I said, if I can be number nine, then I'm going to try to be number one. Um, you know, so that was, that was a cool time for me just to have that drive, you know, have that challenge in, in front of me. What was a fight? Do you remember a fight that things kind of turned around for you as far as confidence that sometimes you go through different moments in your career that it's like a validation in a way you maybe you, you compete against, you fought someone that was more experienced than you or something, but there was a moment of validation for you that things starting to kind of move on. What is a fight that yeah. comes to your mind? You know, honestly, my fight in UFC 46 with Matt Serra was kind of a fight that launched the rest of my career because when I fought him, I was winning a lot. Like I had, I had a good amount of fight experience. I felt really good, but I was fighting much lighter. And then uh, they needed a replacement. And my manager called me and said, Hey, do you know anybody that could fight Matt Sarah on nine days notice? in the UFC at 155 and I'm like me <laughs> he goes aren't you don't you want to stay at 45 I said not for the UFC I'll go up you know plus it's only one week I don't even have time to be afraid I'm just gonna go and I knew I could handle Matt but I knew he was gonna be a lot of like pressure because of his size and um, I was actually like ready to prove myself that I can go up against somebody of his level at the time um, and not get submitted and not get knocked out and possibly even win the fight. So um, that, lo that loss actually set me up. It got me a lot of exposure and a lot of people realized that I have good jujitsu and it was MMA jujitsu, but I, you know, I'd spent my whole life by training the gi every day. You know, I always, I never, gave up jujitsu to train for fights. It was very much like year round thing for me to be training jujitsu and, and um, teaching class and even doing tournaments up until maybe brown belt. I had to stop competing because I was in some big fights and I didn't want to risk uh, maybe having to pull out and I was relying on the money at the time. So that Matt Sarah fight validated me, I think to people, but, um, I kind of left kind of upset with myself that I didn't do better. And, um, you know, there's times where I'm trying to get up the whole time and I can't get up because it's just then boom, I get up. I'm like, why didn't I get up sooner? If I got up now, why didn't I get up then? And, you know, you play head games with yourself about the match, but yeah, I think that validated me with people 
But I think the thing that kind of drove me to continue fighting my whole career is none of the fights ever really validated myself to me. I mm -hmm. retired when I retired all three or four times. I never felt like I finished what I set out to do in the sport. And I always felt like um, I fell short of my goals for myself. So um, I think that's what kept me focused and working to try to always win and get better was, I guess, never feeling like I made it. Do you feel that were you able to perform how you train? Because it's something that happens in whatever, many all sports that sometimes people are not able to perform the way they train. Do you feel that you got close to perform your, uh, your best, your potential, or like you said, the pressure of the responsibilities are getting a little heavier on you, maybe kind of blocked you from being your full self from the academy? I think most of the time, uh, you know, I, I started my school when I was 20, right? So I had, uh, I started my school when I was 20. I started my school about six months, four months later, I had my first fight that eight man tournament. So I, st or I started my school when I was 19, four months later, after I turned 20, I had my first eight man tournament. And then a couple months after that, I had my first student try some local fight, you know, and, and do some amateur fight too. So I've been coaching my whole life since through my whole career, I was traveling with my team, cornering every weekend. And I was always like not prioritized. So mm. my when I would train, I would have good days and bad days like everybody. But I actually, when I fought, I never really felt like um, I wasn't at my potential. I felt like maybe if I had better time to be selfish for myself and I could be a little bit more uh, uh, focused on just me, then maybe I would have done a little better on some of my fights. I mean, I've had plenty of split decisions and decision losses that I know I won the fight, but at the same time, I've had some split decision wins where I feel like, you know, I don't feel like I won. I walk away Got it. with the victor, but I never, I also was humble enough to say, I don't think I won that fight, you know, but any fight you're still living, you're still walking away from and not knocked out to me in the jujitsu way, you know, we, without a lot of damage, we win that fight, you know? Let's talk about the good and not so good performance. So what is one of the best performances that you have, regardless of the size, let's say, of the event or how big is just, we're talking about performing. That means you felt like, man, training went well. It was just, everything has just worked the way you wanted in this fight. What is a fight that stand out for you? You know, there's, there's lots of fights that stand out. Um, my fight with Mike Brown in the WEC was one where standing up, I was feeling good. Like I was, um, I was good to win the fight, but then I, he took me down. And then in my head, I wanted to take him down. I didn't. So I lost focus of my kind of my strategy, I guess you could say, and my tactics of the match. Uh, so that fight, I kind of wish I had fought differently. Um, my fight with Takeda Mizugaki which was one that I really truly feel like hundred percent. I won the fight. Um, that fight, I feel like I fought to my potential. My only regret is I didn't wrestle as good as I know I could. So I don't really have like 
it's just, I never really have a fight where I come out feeling like, man, Jeff, you did really good. You know, I always come out going, I should have done this better. I should have done that better. I come out of fights happy. I won. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had, had some, some rough ones. Um, Going back to this one experience where I fought this guy, Jason Dent, who actually went on, I think to fight in the UFC or the ultimate fighter, but yeah, I remember Jason was like a, another midwest tough guy and he had this like chuck liddell style he threw his hands really hard and he punched me in the he like hit me in the orbital early in the first round and i could barely i had no idea where i was and then you watch the fight and i duck under a kick and it just kind of grazes my head and then i take him down and i start just kind of being really aggressive because i felt like i i had to uh win the fight you know and then the fight was over and I went to my corner and I apologized and I said, you know, guys, I'm sorry. I didn't, I, I can't believe I didn't pull this one off. I, I thought I could beat him. And they're like, and I said, I've just ended up on my back the whole time. I feel like I took all this punishment and they like, they're like, Jeff, you were on top of the whole time. You won the fight. Wow. You know? And I'm like thinking back, I'm like, man. So that night we went out to like an after party dinner thing and I walked in and I just fainted. And I ended up in the emergency room and had this really bad, like brain thing. And, and, um, so fights like that were like, I guess without even knowing I rose up and fought to my potential, even just on, sure. autopi- on autopilot. And, oh um, yeah, I mean, I think jujitsu does that for us because in a, in a real fight situation, I never trained jujitsu just for sport. I shouldn't say that when I first started it, I thought, I don't know why I'm training it. I guess the, I saw some Gracie in action tapes and I was like, I guess I'm going to fight my friend. Somebody who wants to fight me, I'll fight them. But as time went on, I wanted to represent the art and uh, I want to represent my instructors and things like that. But um, it could, it, fighting was rough. <laughs> fighting like that was rough to get, take those kind of punches and jujitsu kicks in. And one other experience I'll tell you about in that same context, it was like extreme challenge 17. And I look across and I see this guy, Mike Halton, who's just jacked. And he's like, you know, I was just like this pale, like little, little kid. And this guy's jacked up, hairy chest, like country boy. Just, I'm like, oh, he's going to, I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't know if I can, he looks like some guys I train with that are really rough. It's because it's not going to be fun. And um, he punches me square in the mouth. And all I remember is the pain that felt. Oh. And then afterwards, I'm in the locker room and I'm all split. My teeth are loose. I'm pouring blood. And I'm again, I said, God, man, what happened? I can't believe I let him hit me like that. And everyone starts telling me, good fight, good fight. So I caught the guy in a choke and put him to sleep. So he punched me. And then as he's punching me, I lock a triangle and he goes to sleep and I win the fight. But again, I was out. I don't remember none of it. So ju- thankfully for jujitsu, we don't have to, oh, if it's in our blood and we, we have the reaction, we don't have to be so perfect. You know? Man. Yeah. Now, thinking about uh, some of the not so good performance, because of course we have a lot of listeners that have been exposed to some type of competition. Jiu-jitsu may not be in MMA, but it's still performing. And I feel that it depends on how experienced people are. There's... I think there's one day that I'm like, man, I don't know what happened. It's just I couldn't perform. I froze or I couldn't deliver. 
things for whatever. Sometimes it's something that's help, uh, happening outside in your in your life, and then you kind of the bringing that to to the mat. So I feel that if people have a lot of experience, there is there will be at least one competition. Say like, yeah, man, I don't know that day is just I don't know what happened. So what is, is there a fight that it was one of those the not so good ones that you look back and and think of that like, man, I did not perform, and you know that it was more mental than anything. And what was the lesson? Um. I, will, I don't feel like I would, I felt, which is weird because at the time I felt like going into it, you feel like you've done everything. Actually, no, I'll go, I'll, I'll, I was going to say my fight with Scott Jorgensen. Um, I knew I could have performed better. I didn't like the way I performed and I was just kind of mad at myself. Also my fight against Johnny Eduardo, you know, he just fought a good strategy, kept me away. Another fight, Hatsuhiyoki over in Pride just tall guys had my number. They, I just couldn't get close to them. They blasted my leg. And I'm wondering like why in all my other fights when my checking kicks, but now I'm not, you know, it's so like I have re regrets on my, how I fought, but going into those fights, I felt mentally strong. I will tell you going into um, my fight with kid Yamamoto was probably the one there's maybe been one other one. I can't recall the, the, who it was sometime that that's hazy on me, but my fight with Kid Yamamoto, um, you know, you don't always, for whatever reason, feel worthy of success. It could be, you know, it could be personal life, things you're doing that you feel like ashamed of or actions you make in your life. Other times it could just be like, I'm, why do I deserve this? You know, you get down on yourself. I feel that sometimes when you, um, I didn't have many days where I would, was not getting punched and we would spar a lot and spar really hard. And then I would go grapple and I would grapple in the morning. Then I'd spar, then I'd grapple at night. And I never really felt like a lot of peace. It was always a very um, aggressive, not aggressive, but continuous process. So going into my fight with Kid Yamamoto uh, over in Hawaii, and, you know, I know how dangerous he was. I watched his fights in Shudo. Uh, he was very aggressive, and I thought, oh, at least he's, you know, small, and I can, smaller than me, which is norm not normally the case. I was walking around maybe 140, 142, and I remember sitting in the locker room and just covering my head with a with a towel or a sweatshirt or something and not wanting to talk to anybody. And I just sat there in my head the whole time telling myself like, yeah, you don't deserve this. You're not, you know, you're not worthy of this win. Um, for whatever reason, you know, it was just a weird kind of funk that I was in and maybe even a like a little mild depression. Um, I think some of it might've been fear of the unknown. I don't know. Winning this might, bring me to here. I know Dana White was in the crowd watching. Losing it might be so detrimental to my next step. And I heard uh, Sean Tompkins. I'm sure you've heard of Sean Tompkins, mm -hmm. famous kickboxing coach. He passed away years back. He was a great friend of mine after this. Um, well, he was in the locker room. I hadn't really got to know him yet. He looked over to my coach and goes, yo, you better like wake him up. And I could hear them talking. And my boxing coach is like, 
no, he's just relaxing. He's like, no, he's, I've seen it. He's in his own head right now. You better snap him out of it. And, you know, so my coach, Doug, he tried to like, come on, Jeff, wake up. I said, no, man, I, I don't want to talk. I don't even want to warm up. I'm just like, but then the fight starts and I get launched so hard. Like the second we clinch, she just boom, throws me. And I was like, oh, better wake up. I'm in the, I'm in the fight now. And I fought hard. It just, I never got started. I felt like I was in this web of just, man, just couldn't go anywhere. And um, I felt that once in jujitsu too. I, I felt, but I guess in, in my fight with kid, I think the third round, you know, I think I won the third round. It was a better performance for me. I was able to stay on my feet and start landing some shots too. Um, but other than that, you know, he pretty much dominated the fight. And I felt like maybe had I mentally prepared for what was coming, um, I would have been better off, but you know, it's. And have you done any work with a sports psychologist or anything like that? Have you talked with someone about it when, when you were active? No, no, I thought about it. Um, honestly, it just came down to like, for myself, money. I've always just been, I was always struggling to survive and pay bills. And, you know, back when I had my fight, my WEC debut, um, I fought uh, Stephen Ledbetter. My son, when I fought him, my son was only like eight months old. My first son was only eight or nine months old. And I had been pretty active leading up to that fight as well. And it was hard having that because I felt a lot of guilt hanging over my head that I wasn't being like a better dad or a better husband. And I'm in the gym all the time and training and you just kind of start to go in a, a different direction. Um, I wish I could do my whole career over again. If that makes sense. I, yeah. I would make different decisions. I felt like I had a, a collective successful career, mm -hmm. but I didn't achieve what I set out to do. What would you do different? It, of course, isn't a set right now, but what would you do different looking back in your career as far as training that would be different? Because people are using a lot of different approaches now. What do you see that could have helped you in the past? I think the first thing I would have done is uh, just prioritize myself a little bit. I, you know, I had a big fight team, a lot of good fighters went on to be successful and, and uh, just have good careers and some had short careers, some had longer careers. Um, that was one thing that I don't regret because I loved it. It was a time in my life I don't want to ever forget, but I wish I could have done, had two different lives and just, you know, woke up, trained, went to home and rested and went back to train again. I probably would have trained a little less than I did. I trained a lot. Uh, I also... I think the one thing that I wish I could have changed was not being the sparring partner for so many years for my guys. I had a lot of lighter guys get really good because they could train with me and um, some of my other really good lighter guys. So even though I didn't have a fight, I was going into sparring all the time. And if somebody that was supposed to show up for a hard sparring session didn't, then I have to jump in and be it. And I would just go into my own training with just headaches and you know just like not even wanting to be there because my last few fights that i had where i burned out basically yeah yeah and and had just 
ringing. So where I'd be like, turn the lights down. I can't even stand the light right now, you know? So, you know, I would just change maybe that. Um, I had a lot of fight. My last fights, when I fought Scott Jorgensen, although I wish I performed better, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed my training for that because I had two injured hands and I couldn't do a lot of like live hard sparring. So I just kind of put that off to the side and I drilled a lot. Um, and then I enjoyed the locker room time. I enjoyed the week, fight week. I tried to take it all in. And the same thing when I fought Pedro Munoz in uh, the RFA. After I after that fight, I retired for the first time. But that was a five-rounder, and I took that on three weeks' notice. Wow. And I cut 30 pounds, and I, we, did, we fought five rounds. And going into round five, it was even. And then round five, I took a bad, bad knee, and it was it was a weird fight. But I... You know, I just going into that fight, I enjoyed the whole fight week, enjoyed the whole process. Good. Every fight that I decided to do after that, even though I had been retired, I just tried to enjoy it. And I wish I would have done that when I was younger because I took it so serious. Although I think you have to. Yeah. Fighting. But I wish I would have just. Um, I also tried to make everybody's experience good. You know, I, I would rent a car and drive everybody to dinner. And even though I couldn't eat and I was fighting the next day after weigh-ins, I'd eat clean and take everybody out to a nice dinner and let them have drinks and do whatever. And I just always wanted everybody around me to be having a great time and enjoying it. I think I, maybe I would have just been better off just isolating myself a little bit more, but can't go back. Got you. And what about the, the moment of the transition of you stop fighting to focus on now we're going to talk a little bit more about business so how was that transition of you like okay i'm officially i'm not fighting anymore and to going in and just run the business it was really hard on me and i'll uh, honestly i still battle with it um i i felt like maybe jujitsu competition will take over um and, I, and as much as I enjoy competing in jiu-jitsu, it didn't have the same effect on me, I think, as MMA. Um, just the skill level is so high, and I'm training with my students. I don't travel a lot anymore because, unless I'm teaching. So I have to work twice as hard to get up to par and get ready. And But go, all competition aside, I've always had to focus on my business, and I think that's the part that I regret it is like I had to have a gym so I didn't have to leave my my family and I didn't have to move away from my wife mm -hmm. you know we just met when I was 20 years old you know we were boyfriend girlfriend back when I was 20 so I didn't want to leave her she didn't want to move away she didn't want to leave her parents so I had to have this like business for even though I didn't really want it uh, then I just became addicted to the process of having my students and I loved helping them and all that kind of stuff but running the business after my fight career is a lot more like, what do I do with my time? You know, I have a good staff that were covering a lot of classes because my schedule was set for me being in a fight, always getting in ready for fights. And now I have all this time. So I start teaching a lot more than I did. And then I have a little bit more free time throughout the day to run the business. And I kind of like, Oh, I guess I can spend it with my kids, but then they're in school and, it's a weird transition completely because 
I don't really like being a businessman. It's I like running my school, um, but being a business owner is not really was not my desire. My desire was to have the freedom to train and stuff. So, but I love I love what I have, and you know I'm grateful, and I work I work really hard to keep it you know keep it good and all that. And then when COVID happened, I had to do that like pandemic pivot, and I had to decide like when we open back up, do I want to have everything I had before or do I want to find this use this as a chance for me to just be a purist like I am in my heart and in my brain for jujitsu because I don't like you know I don't there's two programs there's two full staff staffs to run and and I don't want to be some you know for lack of better terms I don't want to be half-ass striking program half-ass you know, a couple of fighters here and there doing amateur fights. Like I was, I had a big fight team and we were very successful. If I can't do that, I don't really want to do it. Um, if I can't try to be the best, I didn't see the point and just, I don't want to just have fitness kickboxing and things like this. So now with my focus being jujitsu, I can share my, my jujitsu with my students and I can hopefully change people's lives and help give them, you know, the inspiration. And if they want to be become fighters someday and they're really good, then I'd have their back, of course, but I don't want to be a farm. You know, I don't want to just house fighters. And I had dorm rooms and brought in training partners and coaches and doing all this stuff and seven weeks in a row traveling for fights. And then I fight on week eight, man, you know, like cutting weight, training on the road. And I just always, I don't want it anymore. I want to focus on my students more than ever. I want my kids are 12 and 14. I want their jujitsu to be, by the time they graduate high school and are in uh, going to local college for a couple of years, I want them to be able to teach and compete and just, you know, live that kind of life that I, that I wish I had, you know, that I wish I was able to do myself without having to be so wrapped up in other things. Besides, of course, the biggest struggle of running your business that you had most likely is COVID. But now taking COVID out of the way, now we mentioned another struggle when you ran your business was the traveling and fighting and all that kind of stuff. But what is something, what is the struggle that you had during all these years that nowadays you can basically learn from the mistakes? So now with the new place, you don't. You don't have to run into the same difficulty before. Sometimes it's just learn how to deal with staff or marketing or whatever. What yeah. is something that comes to you, to your mind as far as you know struggles in entrepreneurship? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there's probably more than one, but one Absolutely. stands out. Uh, one thing that stands out is my responsibility to um, not only train my fighters, but to like mentor them down the right path and. Um, work with our manager on getting them the right fights and you know being responsible for somebody else's like success or failure and multiple multiple people at once was cutting that out has given me a lot more clarity it's hard for me because I want to be there for them and I wanted to be you know but my dream was never to be the best coach in the world you know my dream was to one fight at a time have everybody be good you know and do well and come out safe and stuff uh, now my goal is 
I want every student to come in here and just look forward to being here. And by trimming, trimming out some responsibilities, um, I feel like I have a lot more, I'm teaching a lot more because I'm going to be covering 90% of my classes, but it's all jujitsu, all in the same mindset. It's always in the same message. Um, maybe even integrate some striking into my jujitsu to make sure people can feel the realistic stuff. But, you know, ultimately not being responsible for a fight team, not having a fight career of my own that I was very selfish with in my brain and my, my mind and my heart to, to weighing over me, having those out, I have a lot more focus. So I would urge anybody that has a, has a business, you know, it's like tearing the bandaid off. You got to do it. I told my partner today and I told one of my other good friends yesterday, I, I told them both, I said, listen, you know, when people, when you lose students to, for one reason or the other, one of my black belts, Joey Deal, he just opened up a school. He got a, had a great opportunity, gave him hundred percent support. He's representing me. He's, you know, he's been my right-hand man for 15 years. He's now 45 minutes away running his own club. He's on week two and little things like that, as much as I'm proud of him, they, they hurt me, you know, they're little cuts to our daily because he was a big part here of teaching and stuff like that. But eventually, um, uh, the scar, you know, the the bleeding stops, the scab comes, the scab leaves, the scar heals and fades away. And that's just how it is, you know, life goes on, everybody's gonna progress and move forward, hopefully. And then that just tells me I did my job right. And if you have a business that you have, whether it's a gym or whatever, I used to have a full blown weight gym, I used to have treadmills and everything for parents to work out on during their kids classes i just had to cut it and say we're focusing on the students it's not for spectators can watch but i'm not having a weight gym i'm not doing everything that you wish i did anymore i'm doing trying to make everyone happy right it's can if do I'm, it. if i'm happy my students are going to be happiest you know they're going to be most beneficial uh the biggest beneficiaries of that happiness if I'm unhappy because I'm not managing all these things that I'm doing to make other people happy, then I have to go home kind of unhappy, stressed out, tired, not happy with the way things are, are operating or looking. It's a hard trade-off, you know, I've got to put myself and my family first and my students for sure. Now, I know it's a tough question sometimes to come up with an answer right away, but what is one of the best piece of advice that you ever received? And it doesn't matter if it's life, jujitsu, business, something that you just make, let's say, just kind of stuck, uh, just stuck with you. Then you're like, okay, uh, I'll keep this, this piece of advice. Well, my dad always, you know, my dad was always um, very hardworking you know, working guy up until he got sick. And, you know, he was always gave me that, that general good advice that if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, you know, kind of attitude. And that always just, and, and don't put off today, don't put off till tomorrow what can be done today. So work-wise, if I know I can do something now and I don't have to put it off till tomorrow, I jump in and do it and get it out of the way. So from a work standpoint, that's just basic advice that's gone a long way with me along with lots of others. But um, Pedro Sauer, 
taught me a lesson one time back probably when I was like I don't know I had to been like 21 years 20 20 years old maybe purple belt 21 years old purple belt something like that and I for to keep it short there was everything that could go wrong in a 20 year old's life was going wrong for me um they, but I was in Utah all the time with Pedro I was there for four months and then um I had to go back home for a week and then I came back for a week and things were just I, way more than I wanted to be dealing with at that age. And I kept trying to talk to him about it. And um, he's just like, let's go train. And then he kicked my ass for like an hour. And I'm like thinking like he knew what was going through my mind. Why is he torched? Like literally hurt, like not hurting me, but like making me so tired and just choking me constantly. And, he was just putting it on me. I'm like, what brought this on? Like, what did I do to him? Hmm. He just gave me a hug afterwards and said, little Jeff, just remember, it could always be worse. You come in here with all these problems and now look, who, who knew that it was going to get worse for an hour than worse, your worst nightmare, you know? And it's like, yeah, it's pretty good advice. But, you know, so I always remember that too. Like, it could always get worse. Be happy with being alive. If you're above the dirt, you know, you're, you're good. That is true. Now, do you have the habit of reading or listening to podcasts or audiobooks or anything like that? Um, when, yeah, sometimes I do, you know, and I don't read very often. I'll get through a few chapters of a book that interests me and then kind of get out of it what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And then I'll just like, I get this weird, like, I don't want to forget what I just read. So I shut off the book or I close the book and you know, shut off my brain from trying to learn more, more stuff. Um, I also feel like um, I have a problem sometimes when I read a lot, I don't remember anything. I'll get like, I've been reading for 20 minutes. I have no idea what I read. Mm. You know, I start, then I'll go back and reread it and try to process it. So I don't feel like I'm a great reader, which is weird because my wife's a teacher and she's a librarian and she reads 24 seven and we're opposite. I don't ever like to read anything. Um, I like listening to podcasts. I like to read, um, like, I, like when competitors or fighters or just good teachers, like in, in our industry, when they write long winded posts or something like that, I love reading stuff like that. Um, I'm more of like a, back in the day, I was more of a magazine guy. I would just like okay. ma magazine and read an article that fit something that I was looking for, but I'm not more of like a casual reader, I'm more like if I'm seeking something. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a huge re I do read, but I, I think I, I do better with audiobooks, mm -hmm. but I do force myself to read, but that would be something for you to experiment, you know, just pop, pop up in. I listen more than once because just like you, sometimes they say something interesting and I'm yeah. gone, I'm gone for a couple of minutes and like, dude, I have no idea what it was said and past five minutes and then i have to go back and listen right. to it but i'll you know i have to listen definitely more than once that would be something for you to explore too yep and as far as podcasts go when when a topic or a, or a person is being on on the podcast that i want to listen to either watch or, or listen to uh, i definitely try to find time to whether i'm driving or you know if i just sit in my office and i just kind of squeeze it in real quick you know i'd like to i like to do my part and listen in and stuff like that so 
Right on. So we're getting close to the end of the interview. So tell me what you're currently excited about. What is going on with the, the school? I know that being little by little has been been growing. I know you have a um, platform too, right? For online platform that you put moves and so forth too, right? Yeah, I just, um, during COVID, we built out the framework and filmed a lot for jeffcurran.tv. And right now I just have a fundamental course up there. Um, I've got a lot of other stuff filmed that uh, my partner, who's a video guy, he's kind of got jammed up with a lot of other things and we had to go work and make money during this and build out this gym. So everything went on hold, but I did film a lot for that. Um, it's going to probably stay on hold for a little bit, but it's a free membership. If you want to, if anyone out there is interested in trying jujitsu and wants basics, I got, I do have my fundamental curriculum up there. Um, you just sign up for free. It's, I'm not charging anybody until it's fully functional and it's got all my material. Um, but the thing that I'm excited about, actually, I'm really, really excited. Um, I'm actually looking at my contract right now with BJJ Fanatics. I'm going to start filming for them. Nice. And I'm going out there in April to drop my first couple series. And um, I'm just kind of interested in like, excited I didn't say interested I'm, I'm excited about letting the jiu-jitsu community know that um, I'm not just this MMA guy that did jiu-jitsu once in a while to fight like I'm a I'm a to the core pure jiu-jitsu guy and I want to share my jiu-jitsu with people I'm not decorated with a lot of uh, titles in jiu-jitsu beyond purple belt even then tournament scene was different so I just did what came up but um, I plan on trying to make my mark moving forward from here on out, you know, till I'm, till I'm old and gray, at least a few tournaments a year. I'm probably going to be out doing the Pan Ams, um, no gi maybe in May. I got to see how my injuries hold up as I get back in better shape this next few weeks. Cause during the build out here, I put on some weight, <laughs> you know, I wasn't training for four months. I just working and, and not eating very well at all. So I want to, I'm still cleaning out, you know, getting myself back in a groove, but yeah, I got a good year ahead. Um, I, I have a lot of things I'm doing for jujitsu. I have my jujitsu retreat that I do once or twice a year. I'm working on maybe my doing a fall retreat in the Smoky Mountains and uh, doing a camp in Park City, Utah with Peter Sauer and um, Mike Diaz, a couple of my friends out there in July. So cool things like that, that I can kind of live my life and, jiu-jitsu lifestyle and feel like i'm doing what i set out to do sharing awesome. and giving back awesome and last question man what is one of the biggest lessons that jiu-jitsu has taught you for life kind of what we talked about earlier it's like when things get bad you just have to weather it you know you got to survive it and i i it's very cliche. People say, you know, jujitsu is life or this is whatever sport is life, but jujitsu principles and concepts really relate to real life. So I try to use that concept of just like survive before I attack, you know, I get my position first and I make sure I'm good uh, before I make my move. And when I was younger, even in fighting, I had a different, I didn't uh, accept that as much as I do now that I'm older. Uh, but I also in life was much more impulsive when I was younger, very aggressive with choices. I didn't think things through very much. And now I'm 
a lot more calculated and it, it, month by month, even getting better, just trying to take my time, make sure that the decision that I'm making is the right one. And that becomes a good habit. So. Right on Jeff. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for the interview. Congratulations on beautiful career. That's a lot of fights, dude. You know, it's like over 100 fights. That's a lot of fight. Can I even imagine? So I feel that your students are very blessed to be able to learn from you because you got so much experience. And I, I bet that what you can bring to even being in someone's corner, could it be in jiu-jitsu tournament, especially in an MMA fight? You've seen so many scenarios, you know, and I feel that you can bring a lot of confidence to them on knowing that you've been there before. And definitely they are in a good position to be learning from you, man. Congratulations. I appreciate that, man. And congrats to you on such a decorated jujitsu career as well. And I appreciate you, you know, looking to have me on and talk about what we love. Here we go. All right, everyone. Keep in touch. See you all soon. Peace. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.